Yes, hello. The time is 2 p.m. I'm Theo Hunt, and this can only mean one thing. You're listening to Newspeak, the most controversial, the best, the biggest, the only political discussion show on 87.7 Berwick FM. Newspeak is freedom of speech going live as we debate the big issues in the world around us. We've got two wonderful guests on this week. Our first guest, some of you may recognise, returning guest, Ollie Crisp. Ollie, it's great to have you with us. How are you doing? It's good to be here, Theo. It's excellent to be back. Yeah, it's it's a pleasure to have you back on. But I'm rather more hyped for my second guest, who I invited on to Newspeak not one week ago, but 13 months ago. We never got him on. And so it's my privilege to, to introduce Labour Club treasurer Sam Hope with us as well. Sam, how are you doing? OK, seems to be having some connection issues with Sam. Um, I'm going to come back to you, Sam. Sam, are you there? Hopefully. Hopefully. Sorry about that. Yeah, you're coming through. Sam, how's it going? I'm well, thank you. Yeah, as, as you say, uh, it has been 13 months in the making, but I'm finally here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I'm, I'm, I hope that Newspeak is everything you've ever dreamed of. Um, but in return, there's some pretty big expectations on you, I'm afraid. Um, well, I'm, <laughs> actually gonna, to I'm actually going to ask the both of you to just mute yourselves when you're not speaking. We seem to have a bit of an echo coming back through, so we'll see if that fixes it. Um, and Ollie, I might need you to mute yourself when you're not talking but we'll come back to the both of you um but first to discuss what our two big topics this week we're going to be talking about alexei navalny the currently jailed russian opposition leader and we're going to be talking about retired prime ministers and how they should be involved in lobbying and their ethics and what we should expect our prime ministers to do when they step down from the role and of course we'll end as always on a lighter topic but first we're going to have the alternative news roundup uh, all the headlines opening monologues notices in this show have been brought to you with the help of the bbc the guardian the economist reuters and HuffPost. but now it's time to look away from the washington westminster news axis and report some of some of the big stories from around the globe and under your nose this is the alternative news roundup Egypt, Ethiopia and Sudan were unable to agree on how to manage a new Ethiopian dam on the Nile River. The Grand Ethiopian uh, Renaissance Dam is a key part of... I've misspelled dam as dam, if you get me on my notes. It's a key part of Ethiopia's economic development. But Egypt and Sudan are worried about its impact downstream. Months of talks have failed to find a way to share the water fairly, ending with Egypt threatening to act to protect its water and its people. The BBC has reported this tension could lead to war in the medium term. In Greenland, indigenous and left-wing party Inuit Atakatich won in an election, defeating long-time incumbent the Sumerit Party, which is especially bolted by its commitment to halt the development of a huge rare-earth mine in the south of the region. The party will now try to form a government. And NASA recently revealed that the Perseverance rover, the new rover on Mars, and its experimental helicopter Ingenuity holds, and I love this, a postage-sized piece of Muslim, postage-stamp-sized piece of Muslim from the very first powered aircraft made by the Wright brothers 118 years ago. This was authorised by the Wright's great-grandniece and great-grandnephew and will be carried by Ingenuity as it attempts the first ever powered and controlled flight on another planet. We wish it all the best. This is awesome. Um, but if you're just joining us, you're listening to Newspeak with me, Theo, and my guests, Ollie and Sam. We're just about to start our main debate topic. A quick reminder, I love receiving your messages on our discussion. They're the best parts of the show. And you can send those to me personally or to the Studio PC. And I'm going to read that number in a second because we love reading them out. They spur a bit of debate. And it's just great to see what uh, everyone else is thinking about these topics. But if you want to message in the Studio PC, I'm going to read that number now. That's 0152. Four five six six four 
6549. And if you do message into the studio PC, please do include your name. But now on to our first topic. In Russia, despite being imprisoned in a penal colony, key opposition figure Alexei Navalny is still, according to The Economist, exposing the cruelties and lies of President Putin's regime. Mr Navalny had been imprisoned for two months and in protest at his poor conditions and lack of medical treatment had been a hunger strike for the past two weeks. He's currently suffering from severe back and leg pain, a fever, breathing problems and is surrounded by prisoners with tuberculosis. He has been denied a photo, a doctor of his choice, his sleep is frequently disrupted and he isn't allowed a family photo album. The Russian government maintains Mr Navalny is justly imprisoned on embezzlement charges, so Mr Navalny and his team deny these charges uh, and various Western governments have kicked up protest at this but this raises quite a question and ollie i'm going to turn to you first with this one how should the government respond should firstly should the government respond should the right okay so this whole navalny thing is super complicated and there's loads of different angles we can approach it from so navalny is this he's possibly, would you not agree, Theo, like the most significant opposition figure to Putin? I don't think, I think Putin doesn't even, like, mention him by name, does he? he refuses to yes, even... Yes. Yeah. So, he's a very important um, opposition figure to Putin. He's done a lot of really important work in terms of exposing the corruption which exists in abundance in uh, in Russia. But the problem comes when we start considering some of the remarks he's made Um He's been associated with ultranationalists. He's used quite like hateful language in terms of talking about certain minorities. He's referred to some um, s- some ethnic minorities in Russia as as vermin. So these are really really troublesome comments. So the the trouble for the West here is trying to decide to what extent should anti-Putin sentiment justify support for someone who's made these kind of comments. And I'm thinking, are we going to be talking a little bit more later about Amnesty International and how they've revoked his well, well, um, well, well, prisoner well, of conscience, conscience status? Or am I, am I jumping a little bit ahead let's, here? Let's start let's, with that now. Let's, let's go for that. Do okay. you want to explain what happened with the Amnesty International? Okay, so, and if I get anything wrong, please do correct me, Theo. Well, I will. But my understanding of it is he was imprisoned a couple of months ago, am I right? After he returned, he was outside the country and he returned back. And as part of, well, the Russian state claims he's been imprisoned based on these charges from 2014. That's about but, right. That's about right. But, yeah, but um, sort of Western governments, and I think Amnesty International themselves have said that this is all a bit of a charade. charade. It's really um, politically motivated. It's about sort of suppressing him and, and discrediting what he's saying. And so in response to that imprisonment, imprisonment Amnesty International has classified him, classified him a couple of months ago as a prisoner of conscience. Um, but recently, I think, is it only last week? It's, it's, it's very recently... Um, they've revoked that status, citing these these um, comments of his. Well, yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was more, more... It's even more complicated than that, because I don't think they ever, think actually, ever described actually described him as a prisoner of conscience. conscience. So to explain what this so is, in the, past, in the past... Ollie, I'm sorry, we're still getting a bit of an echo. You might want to mute your mic. Oh, sorry, yeah, that's me. In the past, Amnesty International, a global human rights charity organisation, would give the label prisoner of conscience to any leader... In any country, he was wrongfully imprisoned, and I, I forgive me, I don't know, he's wrongfully imprisoned as long as they hadn't um, 
incited direct violence in the past. Okay, so it basically gave them more legitimacy both in their country and internationally, um, and made them kind of a, more of a lightning rod for criticism and made it easier to push for their relief. What happened with Alexander Navalny, however, that policy has changed. And Amnesty International now say to be a prisoner of conscience, you must actively support uh, certain values. And instead, you cannot um, say the things that Navalny said. I mean, you're looking at a decade now, 2012, Navalny said on, um, I think, Muslims in the Caucasus region of Caucasus region of Russia um, about black people. And that would be, uh, and that is enough now to deny Navalny the prisoner of conscience label. Uh, but this was only revealed when a memo was leaked from Amnesty International. So it wasn't a public decision. And this has caused a bit of an outcry. Uh, and and Oli, I think you're kind of running with this. Um, basically, Amnesty are denying him this historical, historically used mole lightning rod, the phrase prisoner of conscience although he is the main opposition leader, although he is enduring this huge amount of suffering in prison. Um, but then what, what, what's your point with that, Ollie? Where are you trying, what, what are you trying to say, which is that he doesn't deserve it, which is that he's not the perfect man the West wants him to be? Um, well, really, I've thought about this quite hard, and all I can really say is that I don't know why Amnesty gave him that. Oh, oh wait, so those comments only came out um recently i think those comments are public theo and and if they are and indeed even very recently i know a lot of the stuff that's being cited in the media is quite historic i know some of the most controversial comments about um like ethnic minorities some of them come back they're from 2007 but even recently he's made like homophobic comments so i just feel like um especially with these comments being public i don't know why amnesty didn't really look into this beforehand and, and all they've really achieved here is discredited themselves um and and um inadvertently sort of played into the kremlin's narrative on this so so, so the, are you saying the west shouldn't be supporting the valley is that kind of where you're pointing towards uh i'm gonna give you a solid i don't know to that thing <laughs> <laughs> but, but like what so but but if you but like i'm trying to fit this into a wider context Okay, so you're uh -huh. saying Amnesty International shouldn't be supporting, and Sam, we will come to you in a second, don't worry, we're not. <laughs> um, but, but you're saying Amnesty International shouldn't be supporting Navalny, but more broadly, are you saying... No, they should be supporting... If he's having his human rights infringed in prison, then obviously the West should be against that. But um, to the extent that we sort of... A lot of, a lot of like media commentators in the West are sort of holding Navalny up as this like heroic, brave, pure figure. And it's it need, we need to have like a much more nuanced view on that. And we also, I feel we need to take into account the broader sort of um, geopolitical landscape in terms of our broader attitude to, to, to Putin and to Russia. Okay, so, so Sam, I'm going to turn to you. Would you agree with Ollie's assessment that Navalny's on a pedestal and that's unfair? I, I agree with... Um... Uh, a lot of what he said in terms of um i do think that in terms of the west position it should be that um the kind of the treatment that he's going through is appalling and we should say that no country should do that to any of its citizens uh but i do think we have to walk a tightrope of it in yet making sure that we don't lionize him because as has been pointed out um he has um ha said horrific things in the past not just as kind of like um leaked statements or whatever as uh, kind of political campaigns that he's organised based around um, kind of uh, a Russia for ethnic Russians and stuff like that. Um, and so 
yeah, to make him kind of like a, a figure of kind of a revolution that needs to happen in uh, Russia, where he could be a figure that could liberalise and uh, democratise it, I think is a it's misplaced trust. And um, we ought to be, yeah, careful. Say uh, one of the main problems we have with Russia at the minute is kind of like a... Um, it's um, ultra-nationalism and uh, kind of outward... Uh, huge military face. Um, I don't think uh, the promotion of Alexei Navalny, who is himself um, kind of like coursing with Ukrainian ultranationalists and in the past Russian ultranationalists, I don't see him as uh, promoting him as the solution to that problem. So yeah, definitely uh, opposition to his treatment, but I don't think we should um, kind of make him um, give him our like the full support of our um, of his political views. But, but, but one of Navalny's kind of successes as an opposition leader in Russia has been to unite a large trait of opposition. He's used so-called tactical voting, where you basically vote for whoever the strongest anti-Putin candidate is in your local area. So that might mean communists, that might mean nationalists, that might mean liberals, socialists, whatever. Do you not think that those comments could simply be him trying to keep everyone behind that broad strategy as long as it's anti-Putin? He might not mean those sentiments. He's expressed support for Black Lives Matter last year. So is if it's for ta- it, firstly it might be for tactical gain and secondly doesn't that make it more excusable Sam I, I kind of appreciate yeah how he's had a lot more success than past opposition leaders in trying to kind of galvanize an anti-peace and opposition to really bring a challenge to him but I don't think it um I don't think it justifies it you know there's an awful a lot of um kind of horrific policies and things you can support and things you can say which would you know, galvanise a lot of support within certain kind of areas of politics and areas of society. Uh, but I don't think that um, justifies it by uh, kind of... Because, you know, if you kind of start doing all of these acts to kind of... With the excuse of, oh, we need to get rid of this bad guy. I mean, what at what point do you become... At what point are you still better than, you know, your opposition? Kind of, I, I don't think it must be... We see the kind of like removal of Putin means that everything can be justified. Otherwise, we, we are led down some very dangerous roads. Ollie, how far would you agree with that? Yeah, I think, yeah, it's, yeah, some really important points were made there, which I agree with. And I think it's really important to point out that we can, we can oppose his treatment without advancing, like, his, his political cause. Do you know what I mean? We can oppose infringements on his, on his human rights. We can oppose what the Russian state is, that their behavior towards him without, agreeing with what he does with what he says about minorities but i think it's also important to when we think about how the west is sort of valorizing this individual as part of sort of an effort like as part of like an, a, a broader anti-putin effort i think we really need to consider how wise that strategy is there's a lot of people in the west who do see russia as like a serious uh, geopolitical threat and in terms of um the the like the, what's going on in the world at the moment, and I, I don't really think that that views the wisest. You know, I don't think Russia represents the geostrategic threat to the West that a lot of people think it does. And Putin's got a Putin's not a weak leader. He's he's got like quite a stronghold on the country. He's relatively popular with the Russian people, um, and yeah, even the extent to which Navalny is supported in Russia is is a matter of controversy. Right, but so you're saying Russia is a threat and so the West needs to speak more softly. But then 
Okay, let's assume... No, no, I'm not saying that, Theo. I'm, say- I'm saying that it's not the threat that a lot of people think it is. Right. I think... Um, and so, yeah. Um, and in terms of, you know, projecting the next few decades, um, we really need to consider our relationship to Russia. Okay, so, so, so what are you implying here? Are you implying that we should not push so hard on Navalny? Or I'm implying, should- like, the greatest threat to the West is further east than Russia. Right, okay, so, uh, let, 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 Sam, are you agreeing that possibly R- R- Russia is not a great threat, that is not a, a serious problem that should be occupying? Because in the recent defence review, Russia was identified as one of the, it's not the primary threat, that's China, but Russia mm. is seen widely as one of Britain's greatest threats, of course, the poisoning of Skripals, the poisoning of Litvinenko in 2007. Clearly there is some tension, to say the least. Sam, would you... How much would you agree with Ollie's assessment that, that, that Russia is not the, the ultimate threat here? I'd say I'd agree in terms of China's rise is far more astronomical um, than uh, Russia. And if, you know, I think it's probably fair to make a prediction that in the next um, couple of decades, we will see the re-emergence of a kind of Cold War situation between China and America. But I still think Russia... I still think Russia um, is a very prominent international actor, and especially in Europe. I mean, if you look to it only um, seven years ago, is it now, that uh, Russia, without consequence, apart from sanctions, was able to um, annex um, of part of Ukraine and um, Crimea. And, uh, yeah, Crimea is now Russian um, by all kind of... uh, by any measure, really. Apart, obviously, there are people in in Ukraine and people across everywhere which still believe Crimea to be Ukraine, Ukrainian. But um, in terms of how it functions today, in terms of you know, kind of like legislature, um, all of these different aspects, it, it functions as a part of Russia. And you know, it's uh, clear, of course, that Russia still um, has the capacity to and wants to act militarily elsewhere. Yeah. If you look to its involvement in the Syrian civil war. And as you say, it's it's clearly um, kind of confident enough that it can, uh, yeah, um, participate in stuff like, well, rumoured to, but most likely true, um, the Novchok poisonings and such. And so I feel like, and especially, of course, because it's a kind of uh, area which has very much been a... Um, kind of focal point for western security you know kind of looking at the baltics looking at ukraine these are areas which nato particularly focused on as kind of like where the west can really show how powerful it is and um and it faced weakness and it faced defeat uh, because crimea became russian and uh, i think it can most likely happen again because i i don't see that um confidence in putin's regime and uh military loyalty or military support is going to go down anytime soon to be honest ollie do you agree mm. Yeah, can I come in on that? Yeah, because I think that's a really important point there, um, especially about the fact that I don't think we, I don't think Putin's going anywhere anytime soon. Um, and so when we do look at this sort of broader global geopolitical landscape, and we look at the rise of China, and you know, there's some top. Um, I was reading about this the other day. There's, um, I think it's the the top, the the US admirable, like the the, the most senior, um, like naval defense. Um, officer for the Indo-Pacific region has said that Beijing wants to replace, uh, wants to yeah, like overtake Washington in terms of the most prominent 
um, like the political force in the world by 2050. So China is very ambitious. And when we look at the next few decades and we look at this very uh, challenging situation, which is which the, which the West is facing, we really do have to consider what our relationship and what the dynamic is going to be with Russia. And do we want to have this sort of like double front? Do we want to be... Because... There are issues in terms of Russian expansionism in, in, in Eastern Europe, but can we really afford to fight these two major superpowers uh, simultaneously? Um, because but, but we're not just, at the just... end of history. We can't, we can't uh, you know, there are... The West is vulnerable in certain ways. But Ollie, and we you have just to be said that, to that Russia was not as big a threat as we thought it was. There are the bigger threats, but now you're calling it a superpower meddling in Eastern Europe. You can't have it both ways. Which, which vision of Russia it's, is true? It's a superpower. It's a nuclear power. Um... But it's not the biggest threat. It is a threat, but it's not the biggest threat. Shouldn't we uh, uh, still stand up for human rights? Shouldn't we still oppose, you know, the detention of of free citizens like Navalny? Yeah, we should. And this is the this is like the ultimate challenge, isn't it, Theo? It's like to what extent? um, Because we can, you know, we could just the West could just say like, um, oh, we're going to stand up for human rights everywhere. Um, But the reality of the world is, it's very hard to do that. Um, like I said, we're not. We haven't reached the end of history, and there are very difficult realities that we have to face. Um, and I want us to oppose human rights abuses wherever we can. Um, but in terms of looking at the instability which we might be facing over the next fifty years or so, we might have to make some like. We might have to make some compromises, which I don't want us to make. But, but, but when I think about the long-term security of, of Western values, we might have to make those decisions. But the long, doesn't the long-term security of Western values mean still showing that we care about Western values where we find them? And Navalny is one of the most prominent cases, one of the most prominent confrontations of those values in the world at the moment. You know, we can expend energy on Benin and Guatemala and Mexico, or we can focus fire on this issue. Do you not see Navalny as being mm-hmm. one of the key ways in which we prove to China what we're about? Yeah. But what more can we do? What more can we do, Theo? Like, are we going to co- like bust him out of prison? <laughs> you know, what more can we, what, what we, we were opposing his imprisonment. Um, what more can we possibly do? Sandra, do you want to come in there? I was, yeah, I was just going to say, I kind of do... I I think, unfortunately, with every political situation, you've got to, you know... It would be lovely if everything was incredibly clear-cut and black and white and there were goodies and baddies in, in every scenario. And uh, But, unfortunately, um, it doesn't quite work like that and we have to kind of assess the advantages and disadvantages of how much we can do because... The worst thing that could possibly happen, really, is if uh, tensions were stoked so much between um, Britain and Russia that uh, kind of there would be the return to war in Europe, which has not been uh, there hasn't been war in Europe for seventy five years now, and um, that's probably the longest time ever, as long as there have been you know kingdoms um, that uh, Europe has been uh, at peace, and um, you know we can. We absolutely want to kind of have a commitment to upholding human rights and making sure that um, there aren't political prisoners being oppressed. Uh, but also, if we escalate tension so far, you could have, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of deaths and widespread destruction. Um, and, yeah, unfortunately, um, it, it's, it's kind of like... it's. 
bold and noble to kind of go into every fight with a kind of uncompromising quest for justice but unfortunately uh that can accidentally turn into a situation where uh even more uh damage is being done exponentially more okay so we've got one of those frustrating episodes where the two guests are agreeing with each other um and this is always, <laughs> always quite entertaining um we're just going to wrap up this topic with with perhaps one final question i mean i know it's a big question but i'd appreciate your thoughts on it what hope is there for russian democracy sam um <laughs> that's a difficult question yeah i'd say well I, I mean it's quite clear i mean it's a very regrettable fact but it is unfortunately quite clear that the majority of russians at this point uh back putin and if you look in kind of like a kind of polling that's been taken it might not be as accurate as polling here um but it's still fairly accurate and it says that you know last month 65 percent of russians had confidence in putin and his uh, leadership of the country and so you know if you're saying that democracy is uh relying on the fundamental pillar of self-determination if we want to kind of go in there all guns blazing remove putin and you know institute a uh democratic government um that would at present actually be against the wishes of the russian people so it's um i'd say in terms of uh yeah the kind of setup of a traditional uh kind of system like we have here in russia is at this point uh, very unlikely mm. okay and, mm. and and ollie yeah i mean um how old is putin <laughs> that might be like the most significant question in terms of like predicting whether democracy is going to happen i think he might be late 60s so the new constitutional changes he implemented means that he will step down 2036 when he's going to be 83 so that will oh, wow. put him at late late 60s now is my math correct i think it wow. is yeah yeah so i mean um We'll see, like, uh, if he can re- retain his popularity. I wonder, um, I, I mean, you guys might be able to speak a little bit more to this. If, if you guys know um, where a lot of the support comes from, um, like, what is it? Do we know what it is people see in Putin in, in terms of, like, why he's so popular? Is it, I, I, I know he likes to present an image of um, fighting corruption. Um, is that it? I, I, I think, uh, go on, Sam. Oh, I was just going to say, I think there was a, um, kind of like after the cold war ended and the ussr split up and kind of russia was left in this kind of on kind of the world stage an extremely weak position there was i think a a sense of um lost pride and kind of like a lost uh sense of identity Uh, whereas now um you know a very key element of putin's rule has been to restate russia's position on the world stage restate it as a military power and kind of like reclaim that pride in mm. russia and how how it uh there's a belief that it should be like a major player on the world stage and it should be leading the kind of the world forward um and yeah i think putin brought that back after a very um kind of like uh unstable um yeah. humiliating period with gorbachev and yeltsin 
Yeah, yeah, I mean, Russian history is kind of period of intense suffering and chaos, followed by long periods of relative stability. And the 1990s was a miserable decade for for Russia, and that kind of left has left a scar on the collective memory. And Putin is the opposite. You know, it's a healing of that scar. If you so like, I've just received word from my top researcher, Mr. Grayston, in the uh, Berg think tank, that Putin is in fact 68. So that does. He doesn't look 68. Issue. He looks younger than 68. I reckon yeah, I his photos like are doctored. <laughs> Um, I uh, yeah maybe it's all the photos of him topless on a sh- on a horse. Um, <laughs> that's, a fun, that's a fun Google rabbit hole to go down. But we're going to move on to our next topic. Back in the UK, the Sunday Times has over the several weeks been disclosing details of former Prime Minister David Cameron's lobbying efforts on behalf of Greensill Capital. It is a live story. It's been updating today, so do forgive me if I've got a couple of uh, facts wrong. I'm sure you, both the guests here will very quickly correct me. But essentially, it's been revealed that over several years, David Cameron uh, had been meeting and using his personal contacts with uh, cabinet figures such as Matt Hancock and Rishi Sunak to lobby in favour of Greensill Capital. Now, as I understand it, this is legal, but the way in which he's gone about it is, at the very least, seems to have crossed, for many, an ethical line. Labour, for instance, is accused there being a culture of cronyism in government. But Mr Hancock, Sunak, Mr Cameron all deny wrongdoing. Um, although an independent body has cleared him of wrongdoing, but there is now a storm being kicked up in Parliament over um, a government inquiry which Labour accused of being um, uh, the government marking its own homework while the government insists that it is going through the correct means of doing so. Cameron is not the first minister to engage in controversial lobbying post office. Tony Blair, um, his lobbying efforts gained a kind of how do we put this politely on broadcast radio? Persistent questions, I think, would be a good way to put it. And Margaret Thatcher worked for tobacco company Philip Morris for a time. So, uh, Sam, I'm going to come to you first this one. Isn't it reasonable for ex-prime ministers to, um, in a lobbying, just, you know, they want their, the top of politics for several years, David Cameron six years, Tony Blair ten, Margaret Thatcher thirteen. Um, well, no, ten. So, you know, isn't it fair they want to be continuing in politics and policy making and, and lobbying is the best way of doing that. It's just another way of channeling their, their energy. Is that not reasonable? Well, I think there's a, a difference um, fundamentally between um, kind of like the lobbying for a political position because you want the government to do something better to help citizens more and lobbying in the sense of uh, you want the government to take this position because it would uh, fill your pockets more. And uh, this uh, very much seems to be, in this case, the latter. Um, and I think it does. it's a, a worrying indictment of uh, British politics how this... Well, firstly, how, how it's you know, completely legal, really, and that um, something like this can happen and be... Uh, cleared for wrongdoing uh, because you know everyone everyone is aware that this is on a basic level immoral and shouldn't happen and it really uh, kind of um, makes people's trust in government as a kind of representative for the people um, falter Uh, so I'd say yeah I think I mean my personal preference is that once prime ministers uh, leave office they should really uh, I think the kind of most uh, considerate thing to do i do i do appreciate the kind of elder statesman argument but uh, is to uh to for the most part leave um politics and so uh, what what example who would you look to as a former prime minister who who would have set a good example i'd say um i'm a big fan of him generally but Har- howard wilson after he left office pretty much kind of just dropped off the face of the earth in terms of uh, politically and uh spent a very happy retirement with his wife and uh kind of 
you know, Felix's kind of popularity now and popularity kind of just after he left office, due to that, it was high because I think, yeah, there is a kind of basic respect for, um, you know, people who are um, people not um, kind of using their former status to get ahead uh, when after they've left office, they no longer have any accountability and they no longer have anyone voting for them. That, that might, of course, been helped by the fact that Wilson is thought to have dementia, which does kind of limit lobbying yes. efforts, I must say, post office. But OK, so, so Ollie, how much would you agree with Sam's point that Prime Minister's once yeah. had done to just go? Um, I know I'm supposed to be on this radio show as sort of the anti-Labour representative, um, but, um, yeah, it's... Yeah, how do I defend lobbying? Um, well, firstly, I'd say that, you know, Mr Cameron and Mr Hancock and Mr Sunak um, say they've done nothing wrong, uh, and they're all, you know, upstanding um, people, so, uh, you know, maybe, that, maybe that'll be enough for some people. But, yeah, one important serious point I would quite like to make is that um, Cameron actually didn't get what he wanted here. His, like, his lobbying attempts were unsuccessful. He had all these meetings with um, these private drinks with Hancock. He had all he sent these um, little text messages to Sunak. Um, but he was unsuccessful in, in getting Greensill as part of the... Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but what he was trying to do was to get the Greensill on some kind of COVID loan scheme. Yeah, that was um, it. But he, he, it didn't. It, it didn't work. Like I think I saw some of the messages. There's been a couple of messages released by Sunak that he sent to to Cameron, um, basically saying like I'll look into it, Dave. Um, but yeah, the the company wasn't awarded what it was looking to get. Um, and I think Cameron lost like sixty million pounds or something. I was watching a little video on it this morning. So that's quite an important point that the lobbying was actually unsuccessful. And I think maybe that should maybe. Um, the government should get a little bit of credit for that. You know, this is a former prime minister asking for a favour, and they basically were like, "No, sorry, not can, no can do, Dave." But the, but the problem is, does this not go deeper than David Cameron? Because um, there's been a revelation that top civil servant Bill Crozes was employed by Greensill Capital while still working for government, and the prime minister. Yeah, but he was unpaid. He was unpaid, wasn't he? But 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 still, surely the lobbying firm holds a promise of, oh, you know, you'll get a job. There are incentives beyond wages often lobbying firms can promise a nice cushy seat on an executive board afterwards you know yeah, but even- i don't know how you think fix that theo um are we supposed to like i mean maybe we should have like a political culture where um people um politicians just like completely retire after the finish but realistically that's not how the world works is it people are going to want a job in the private sector afterwards so like i don't know how you fix that okay so Let's return then to the specifics of the office of the Prime Minister. How then, what, what does a good... So Sam is saying a good Prime Minister, after they leave office, is one who basically goes into hiding, you know, self-imposed exile. Could... could what potential... How do I phrase this question? Should the Prime Minister's office look like that? Can we not well, pursue... Yeah, for the, the sake elder- of our... Oh, sorry, Theo. Can we not pursue the idea of an elder statesman? You know, John Major sometimes fulfills his role. Should uh, prime ministers try to aspire to be kind of a wise, impartial figure beyond politics? Ollie? I mean, in an ideal world, Theo, but we don't live in an ideal world, do we? <laughs> um, just, just to sort of articulate the the opposite, like the the counter perspective. The you know, prime ministers have the very experienced, very knowledgeable. And um, don't we want a healthy relationship between the business community and politics? 
Mm, okay, so so Sam, what? Talk us through again. You used the Howard Wilson example. We've now, in fact, no, let's, we've now got a civil servant being involved in 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 um, in Greensill. Is there then Labour's the headline? The BBC News right now. Labour attacks Tory sleeves. Quote amid lobbying row. Sam, is there something wrong with this government? I believe so, and I think that you know this is although this is the first time that kind of like um ex-Prime Minister have been involved in this government's term. The type of activity that uh, we're talking about here is um, kind of been in the news a lot uh, over the past year and, you know, we've seen kind of various examples of uh, friends of Matt Hancock being awarded contracts when they've, you know, never had any experience in the sector. And, you know, these are people who were given, you know, hundreds of millions to supply products um, for the, uh, you know helping the safety of the nation and um so yeah i think i think there is uh something fundamentally rotten when uh various kind of when there's such a relationship where um favors can be given to friends um to the tune of you know uh, billions of pounds and well, right. um it's worth and, uh, quickly that you know, those involved do deny these allegations at the moment. We, they do. Yeah, aside, but uh, that was an interruption. Please continue. And, um, yeah, so I, I would say that... Um, and, and to be fair, I would not I would say it's uh, not only the fault of this government, it's clear that, you know, there's, there's a system in this country and many other countries where um, there are people in big business who um, kind of through donating to political parties, through doing this, that and the other, can get uh, favours and special treatment by governments. And um, I think it's particularly uh, kind of shown its ugly head over the past year with how much we've uh, had to rely on kind of outsourcing and how much of that has been provided at a very poor service. with, so, know, so, so you're saying this government basically, I mean, you use the word rotten there, which is pretty strong, but it also reflects a lot of the language that is being thrown around by the Labour Party at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. Is there not, I mean, the government's success of the vaccine rollout has been, I think we can agree, pretty phenomenal. It's set an ambitious yes. target and met those targets. The roadmap is going as expected. Does that not suggest that a lot of the government, the mechanism is working fine? And all, all, gov- all manner of government struggled with the pandemic in Italy and France and Spain, even in Germany, you know, reliable Germany, oh, it's got everything going right, is now considering a third lockdown. So hasn't actually the government got more to its credit than not? I'd say on, on the vaccine rollout, you're right, and that the ultimately the rollout is going very well, um, and I'm, I'm thankful for that. Uh, but, you know, if, in terms of these conversations before the vaccine rollout, um, when you're looking at kind of the track and trace system and how it was essentially unworkable, I feel like there could have been um, so many uh, lives saved and, you know, people who are now suffering with long COVID wouldn't, wouldn't have to if the kind of uh, appropriate technology, which other countries had at the time, uh, was being used here. But but unfortunately, due to um, kind of ineptitude through, you know, um, apparently in some cases... Um, contracts of uh, being awarded to kind of the friends of Matt Hancock and such um, yeah we're left um, with an incredibly high death toll and uh, you know near enough what was it 15% of the country have had it right. so it's, um, it's, it's, it's even though of course it's as bad as it or 
it's as bad as other nations, possibly worse than other nations. You know, these are you know similar things have happened in these nations as well. Um, so you know, it's it's an endemic issue for lots of governments, okay. and uh, yeah, the, the yeah we don't have to be uh, any worse than them to still not be bad. Okay, I mean, before we go any further, we should probably issue a disclaimer. Um, which is that, in fact, one of our guests has waited at one of Rishi Sunak's regular pubs. And, and I, I don't know what notes Ollie and Rishi have slipped together, but, you know, we've got to make that clear before we go any further in the discussion. What, what, what's Rishi's favourite dish, Ollie? He likes a good chicken Kiev. <laughs> a man of the people. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm trying to sort of, I'm, uh, I'm trying to land myself a job at the Treasury. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I've been giving Mr. Sunak a little bit of economic advice every time I've, I've served as a chicken Kiev. Oh, lovely, lovely. I'm not quite too sure he's appreciated it, but nonetheless, my valiant attempts to secure a job in 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 um, the Johnson government continue. <laughs> but can I make a, a, a bit of a serious well, well, uh, partisan I, I, point I, I briefly, Theo? Oh, are we moving on? I was actually okay. go, no, I was actually going to turn to you because because Sam's basically uh, and, and, and I was quite a monologue from Sam and it's quite interesting in saying basically look look at all these failures from the government uh, and the yeah. vaccine rollout doesn't invalidate them. But I, I kind of want to ask how much you agree with that because at the moment polls are higher for Johnson than at any point during the pandemic. So Sam's view is not shared by a lot of the country. I'm very sorry, Sam. I was so, so, would you agree with Sam? Would you be agreeing with the, you know, ever increasing? I think we're looking at forty-seven percent of the population supporting the Conservative Party in polls at the moment. How would you align? Yeah, I understand why the people are, are supporting the Conservative government. And can I make a sort of a, going back briefly to all the, yeah, the lobbying yeah, stuff we it. were talking about? I think it's you know we're seeing all the stuff in the in the papers today about you know Labour's um, criticising the Tories. And it's very easy for Labour to criticise the Tories because Labour haven't been in power for ten years. So it's like, of course, of course, all the dirt is going to be on the on on the Tories, isn't it? Because Labour haven't have, they haven't been in a position to, to 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 engage in that kind of sleaze. And like you mentioned at the at the top of all this, Theo, in terms of you know, there's loads of stuff with Blair. Um, I, I'm not too sure was Blair ever um, accused of like lobbying efforts in this country, though. I know he's been accused of like doing sneaky stuff overseas, and in uh, um, some have even accused him of being involved in companies which profited from um, our involvement in Iraq, which is really, really contentious stuff. But yeah, the point I'm making is like a lot of like uh, labourites are sort of using this as an opportunity to throw muck at the Tories. And the reality is that I don't know if Labour would have behaved any differently if they'd been in office for the last ten years. Well, it, 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 Blair, there's a lot of uncertainty, and I'm, I'm going to be honest, I don't know the details of um, Blair and his lobbying. There was the Cash for Honours scandal, which um, in the last couple of years, the Blair administration, which utilised a loophole, which meant if you donated, as I understand it, very quickly skimming the Labour Party, if you, give, if you gave money to the Labour Party, it basically allowed for um, to be given a life period. So uh, that's obviously very deeply unethical, you know, rewarding people for supporting the, the, the winning horse. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, there's a lot of uncertainties around Blair and his lobbying. Uh, David Runciman, who's one of my favourite kind of political thinkers, he had a great podcast called Talking Politics, recommend it, has written that Blair often worked on behalf of British arms firms, whether, you know, selling products in Nigeria... What? Um, ...or in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, so you have... He's involved with all these oil um, corporations as well. I, I don't... OK, I can't confirm that. And, and I'm reporting what someone else has said. And I'd like to make that very clear. This is not something I know... Our listeners should definitely Google this. 
Um, I, I cannot again endorse whether our listeners should definitely Google this, though, you know, Google Wait, they yeah. should Google it. They should do their own research, Theo. But, but, but the point stands. So you're saying Labour is not free from these criticisms. And I certainly am. It's moot that Labour are criticising the government when they are as hopeless enough at being in opposition that they're not actually in government. Uh, Sam, I imagine you might have something to say about that. <laughs> Uh, just just a bit, yeah. Um, I'd, I'd say, I mean, to be fair, I, I think there are, um, like, if you're talking about criticism of stuff like the Cash for Honor stand, uh, scandal, I think it's absolutely valid, and I feel like if the Labour Party wants to, you know, um, become a, uh, once again a party people trust to uh, run the country, then it has to recognise that some of the, you know, some of these things that we did when we were pass- uh, in government um, the last time around were wrong, and cash rounds is certainly one of them. Um, and but I, I don't think it um, invalidates um, the criticisms that are being levelled against the uh, government currently, uh, because ultimately it's kind of it's just working. It's working on hypotheticals, really. It's working on the kind of the hypothetical of oh, if Labour were in government, they'd also be awful. Which is kind of like, I don't think that uh, stands up to scrutiny, really, in terms of uh, uh, an effective justification for why the government here has acted how it has. But yeah, I, I'd, I'd ultimately say yeah, there has been. Um, Labour has had its uh, fair share, even if not as many as the Tories, of um, kind of corruption scandals and such. And so uh, this needs to be called out from whichever party it's coming from. And we need to make sure that rather than kind of like us, you know, uh, saying, oh, this is all wrong and awful at the time, and then it just going away very quickly, we need to set up uh, kind of change the political culture and change the political systems that these consistent uh, corruption scandals um yeah just can't keep happening over and over again i mean we yeah know- i do think oh sorry Theo, go ahead no go on ollie i, I want to hear you i was response. just gonna say yeah i am a bit like i don't think this cameron thing's gonna stick i'm just making a bro like this is just sort of a gen a broader point here i feel like both parties are gonna like you know labor will talk about it for a little bit but i think the fact that he didn't actually get what he wanted is a, is, is a really significant part of this you know if sunak and that's why it's like the cameron scandal not the sunak scandal um, and both parties are sort of, because they're both sort of participating in this, I'm really cynical as to whether anything's actually going to get done. That's is that because Sunak texted you the other day and said, yeah, now this isn't a problem? Uh, I'm actually talking to Sunak right now, and he's he's feeding me. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, <laughs> and, and Sam, I think, makes a good point. During the Conservative government, you know, you had a Conservative government for 17 years, from 1979 to 1997. And certainly in John Major, in his uh, premiership in the 1990s, you know, he replaced Margaret Thatcher and said, look, we're going to be back to basics. We're going to return politics to a simpler, better time. And then quite a lot of his MPs were involved in corruption and some naughty, naughty things and kind of undermined his whole administration. (laughs) The idea was after 17 years in power, they'd just kind of given up on honest government. So that, that suggests this is not the first time we we have had serious kind of scandals in British politics and corruption questions in British politics, whether it's Blair or Major. Can we ever, Ollie? Can we ever get rid of these kind of questions, these ethical breaches in politics? Can we ever limit them substantially? Yeah. I think, and I also think we need to th- think kind of 
it's, it can be very tempting to think, oh, we need to introduce all these rules and these new commissions and co- committees and stuff like that. And that, that, you know, that might represent part of the solution. But I also think people, um, th- there's resp- a responsibility as voters. You know, when we vote for our MPs, we really need to look at look into their history, look at like what they stand for. And you know, I think a, a good way to sort of fix this, and as Sam said, a good way to sort of change our political culture and to. Um, it comes down to voters, really, and making sure we elect like good, honourable, upstanding um, representatives. Um, and I'll sort of leave it to the audience to decide whether we have that at the moment or not. Um, but yeah, there's a lot we could do just as voters to change the political culture. Sam, would you agree? I would, yeah. Um, I'd say that, um, well, it's very difficult to kind of, um, in the kind of current political system we have, where in for the absolute majority of people, uh, one of, um, well, for the absolute majority of people, to be fair, it's very likely uh, that they will have an um, MP from the same party uh, throughout the time they're there. Uh, most seats, you know, are pretty safe and uh, don't change hands too much. Um, so it is unfortunately kind of, like, difficult to... Um, there have only been a few cases, you know, where there's been a kind of, like, mass rebellion against... Uh, uh, MP due to their behaviour in office like there's um was it oh is it Tim Bell the, for the by-election when mm. he ran as an independent in 96 or something like that um, but yeah I, I think I think it's absolutely right that kind of voters should be more diligent when they make their choices I just think it's unfortunate that we have a political system currently that in terms of when you turn up at a voting booth doesn't encourage well, that at can all Can I ask Sam how are you would um if we've got time, could I ask Sam like what you, what you might be able to suggest? We, we do have yeah. time. Go for it. Um, I think there just needs to be overall. I mean, this might be a a little bit controversial, but <laughs> that's what I'm here for. Um, but I think overall, <laughs> that there needs to be uh, kind of a lack. There, there needs to be a recognition that for the most part, most forms of lobbying are dodgy and when you look at MPs going on all expenses paid for trips by companies to put forward in parliament what they want to see it's um it's it's undemocratic really the fact that businesses can you know for say like a big tobacco company um just as a hypothetical could you know send a MP on um kind of a all expenses paid for trip and um in return the MP will come into parliament and will say oh uh the kind of restrictions on advertisement for um tobacco companies should be far less and we should do something about this and you know that's unfortunately how a lot of um points in kind of uh parliament are brought up and how they, so, they see this kind of corruption or not corruption but you know this kind of culture of how it's not it's not even well how you know, do we fix thing. that do we stop um, um do we stop people getting job do we just say once you've been an mp you just can't like, because I think the rule's two years, isn't it? It's two years before you can go into some kind of lobbying role. So. Do we just say? Do we just say never? Is it two years for the MP to sit on the naughty step and think about what they've done? <laughs> 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 and everything you did in Parliament. Um, well, I think Pretty Patel in 2017 was sacked from the cabinet by Theresa May, wasn't she? After she went on an undeclared trip as depart, um, Secretary for International Development, an undeclared trip to Israel. You know, all, as oh, yeah. of all expenses paid. That, yeah. Now, Pretty Patel has never amounted to anything. No one, for instance, would after that <laughs> scandal give her the role of Home Secretary. Um, but I, I do wonder, and this is like my closing reflection on this top. Well. Maybe not. But um, I do wonder, though, uh, Ollie, um, just because I know Sam's been speaking a bit on this issue so far, 
is politics not an imperfect reflection of imperfect people? You know, as long as voters are imperfect, the politicians we reflect will be imperfect, and therefore there will always be some corruption and some inethics, and we just have to trust to enough politicians who are good and sound to, to carry things through. Yeah, so you sort of evoking that sort of sentiment that, like, the, the people get what they deserve kind of thing. Well, not um, quite. I think it's more less judgmental than that. I think it just is the system reflects the people, and we're not perfect people, therefore the system will never be perfect and pure. I just think that people, um, people don't realise the power they have to change how it works. You know, we sort of victimise ourselves as, as a public and we think, oh, these two evil parties and they're both scandalous. And we don't actually realise it's like every four years we go, we're going and like hundreds of thousands, millions of people are voting for them. And I, I think if we really sort of, if we really wanted to change it, we could, couldn't we? It's just a matter of um, us really deciding to and not resigning ourselves to the fact it has to be the way it is because it is the way it is. Mm. Okay, I'm going to leave that as the final closing statement on this topic um we're going to move on we always have a light-hearted topic to wrap up the show now i don't know whether both of you are living at home or in lancaster in a pandemic lockdown in lancaster has for me meant an absurd number of walks on the canal uh, around williamson park <laughs> uh, just as we open up into summer and people want to go out actually want to go outside because it's nice rather than a necessity are there any walks that you guys can recommend for for, for our lancaster listeners I'd say, um, well, as you've just mentioned, yeah, along the canal, like, by the White Cross and down by Chancellor's Well, it's nice. Uh, and also Wellington Park. But, oh, there's a really nice um, park uh, by... It's kind of, like, connected to the... Not on, but near the University of Cumbria campus up in uh, Barham. And that is a... It might be a bit of a trip for some people, but if there are people in Barham who don't want to walk all the way into town to go to somewhere nice... That is a that's a very nice spot to is that, is that walk around and have. Is that Greaves Park? Lunch. Uh, no, no. Although Greaves Park is really nice as well. It's the one which is kind of like um, it's yeah. It's just but say you're going on like the hundred bus into campus. Yeah. It's just before Barham on the left. Oh, okay. I think I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you'd recommend that to our to our listeners, uh, Ollie? I would, yeah. Any any particular walks? I'm looking forward to my walk to the pub. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I genuinely am. One of the reasons, like, well, not it's not like a major reason, but like one of the reasons I quite liked Lancaster was all the little, really old little pubs, especially the ones dotted along the canal. And I haven't even been able to visit loads of them, so I'm really looking for. I'm really, I genuinely am, Theo. I'm looking forward to visiting some of these really old historic pubs we've got in Lancaster, having some traditional Lancashire ales. Yeah. And then I know that's, I know that's, this isn't quite the direction you were hoping to go in. No, no, no. Um, I like with it. this question about walks. <laughs> but this is where I'm taking it. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. There are an astonishing number of pubs in Lancaster, Sam. I know, are you a fourth-year student? Have you been able to, you know, uh, have you been able to savour some of these pubs for us? Could you give us a bit of feedback on... on I have. Yeah. yeah. Have you got any recommendations? Yeah. There's, um... Uh, so, the ones along the canal, yeah, I really like the White Cross. Uh, in terms of one which is kind of like, in terms of fitting that uh, image of kind of like a very kind of old, nice, independent pub, there's one by, um, just like before the river, um, going uh, like roundabout uh, by the Sainsbury's, there's a really nice pub called the Three Mariners. And uh, that's kind of, it's really tiny. It's only got like, you know, eight tables in it. Or is that on the canal? Uh, no, that's by the river. Mm. That's uh, near Sainsbury's. Um, yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I haven't made oh. notes all um, all episode, but I'm actually <laughs> using my notepad for the first time. <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe what we should do is book out a pub, get all the newspeak guests in, yeah, when we can. I'll put my hot card behind the bar, and you can see the damage we do. You know, well, um, why don't you do one from the pub, Theo? That, that's a decent idea. If I get a couple of H5s out from the station, I promise I pinky swear not to get any, any lager on them. Um, but we could, but please, at home, drink responsibly. Respect the, the laws in the UK around drinking. Um, but yeah, maybe we could all we could all go and go and have have a drink. At, uh, it might help getting uh, guests, mightn't it? <laughs> it probably enough. would. It probably would. <laughs> um, but both of you, you've been wonderful. I just got a couple of shout outs to do. One to my mum who listened to most episodes. Uh, my grandparents are not listening in today, which has been a massive shock to me. They normally messaging some very controversial things that uh, amuse me <laughs> greatly um but my mum is listening in so mum thank you did for we not get any questions we didn't i was a bit disappointed oh. i know we love oh. questions the, the, the family <laughs> this is the thing the people it's always the people the people always let us down here we are pundits and politicians trying to get stuff done the people are betraying us um but mum it's thank you for listening in and also to my cousin sophie who's been listening in while she's cleaning the kitchen with her mum sarah lovely to have some different guests listening in here's your little shout out for you guys um but ollie and sam it's been wonderful having you on i thoroughly enjoyed the episode i hope you at home listening have as well sam it's been 13 months but it has been worth it my goodness thank you for your insights you. and your thoughts we hope you at home enjoyed this week's episode of newspeak where we've been freedom of speech going live i've been theo hunt we'll be about the same time next week but we're going to have a slightly different episode next week so do make sure to tune in for that have a great afternoon and enjoy these final two songs um it won't take long by the Lathams and Seagull. No, Lost. Oh my goodness, I've, I've, I've completely fluffed <laughs> up the song. <laughs> it won't take long by the Lathams and Lost by Seagulls, and it won't take long by the Lathams. That's it. Goodbye. Have a great afternoon. Thank you both, Ollie and Sam. I'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>